0: Welcome back to Cunningham's Law Review, episode 1920-1. You're now listening to the B-side of the podcast, where we review each of the songs in today's music and talk more about the impact that these songs had. If you'd like to join the conversation, the Cunningham's Law subreddit will have a dedicated post for this episode at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review. We'd also love to hear from you through an anchor voicemail. I'm Richie, your host, and I hope you enjoyed the music or at least heard something new. Today's musicians Mamie Smith and Marianne Harris were both called the Queen of the Blues, but to me it's obvious that Mamie Smith brings more to the table for 1920. While Bessie Smith, no relation to Mamie, one-upped both of these queens when she billed herself to be the Empress of the Blues in the late 20s, it's crazy blues that blazed a whole new path for black artists, and that's where we'll start our review today. As a quick refresher, we review music at Cunningham's on a five-factor scale that has a maximum of 25 points. The factors we look for are authenticity, innovation, catchiness, mastery, and complexity. Crazy Blues scores a 20 out of 25. For authenticity, Crazy Blues receives a 4. Authenticity is a major factor for why it sounds so wonderful. This was the kind of music that Mamie Smith had been performing for years by this point, and if she had written the song, or even if the song was more personal and descriptive and written by someone else, Crazy Blues would get a 5 for authenticity. As it stands, the song was written by Perry Bradford. Now Bradford was instrumental in convincing Frederick Hager at OK Records to let a black band perform the song, as previous recording that Mamie Smith had done for OK with That Thing Called Love and You Can't Keep a Good Man Down were played by the OK Studio Band. Fred Hager deserves credit for his decision to record here as well, because there were threats made against him prior, stating that if he recorded a black singer that racist white buyers would boycott OK. For innovation, Crazy Blues receives a 5. It's rumored that during recording, after being given specific instructions on how to play for the delicate equipment of the time, that the band played how they normally did anyway, causing the first recording director to storm out and hand the controls to Hager directly. The band knew what they wanted to sound like, and they knew how to get there. That they were successful in their experiment earns them a perfect five. This was Mamie Smith's biggest hit, and sold over one million records for OK. Up to then, it was assumed that there was no market for black artists since white audiences wouldn't buy their records, and black audiences were assumed to not have the money to purchase them. This song helped to innovate an entirely new market by selling so incredibly well. The low swinging of this song will be in your head for the next few days, and the walking, bluesy sounds of the horns overlapping with each other create a rhythm that is unique and gets into your head when you walk around the house thinking about it, earning Crazy Blues a 4 for catchiness. While the band here is competent and deserves recognition for bringing this music to life on the record authentically in a challenging recording environment, none of their performances are standout in any particular way, and the song receives a four for mastery. There's little groundbreaking in artistic statement around pretty much any popular song of the 1920s. For the most part, and you'll find this throughout other songs we review today, they were meant to be entertaining and easy to absorb for audiences, and they don't often feature a lot of complex themes. This song tells the story of a woman driven to crazy acts by her lover leaving, and this is a very well-worn topic for the era. But Crazy Blues is more than the sum of its parts. Crazy Blues proved that black audiences were willing and able to purchase music by black artists. But in order to differentiate the records from those by white artists, the concept of race records was born. Race records were a marketing tool that made it both easier for the discerning racist customers to avoid black records, and for record companies to focus marketing on black audiences for those records. However, as more and more blues and jazz hits came out through the 20s, the market developed, and there were definitely white customers helping the growth. Art was closing the race gap by a tiny little bit, one record at a time. And the race gap between black and white artists at the time was very big, Advertisements in 1920 highlight Mamie Smith as OK's race artist. And for context, we're only talking about 100 years ago in the United States. There are literally people alive in the US right now who were alive when these events were happening. It's hard to believe, but it's true. But Crazy Blues wasn't Mamie Smith's only hit in 1920. We also listened to Fair The Honey Blues and You Can't Keep A Good Man Down, these songs receiving 16 and 15 points respectively. For authenticity, each of these songs receives a three. They were both recorded by OK's house band instead of the jazz hounds that Mamie Smith would later record and tour with, and I feel you can tell. It's as if they were playing music by the numbers instead of as if they understood the goal of the music. The songs also received threes for innovation. While these songs are important innovations in themselves, by being the earliest recordings by a black vocalist on a blues track, Mamie Smith was singing much more conservative and traditionally, probably so that she could be asked back later after having proven herself. In terms of catchiness, these songs are also threes. They're rather forgettable unless a lyric happens to catch you just right. Mainly, if you've been listening to a lot of 1920s music, you'll find that this just fits in with it rather than standing out from the crowd. Where the songs do differ is in mastery, where Fair The Honey Blues does one thing to show off that you can't keep a good man down does not by including short pops of solos in the song. Letting the musicians spread their wings a bit helps to liven up the song and shows what they can do. But it should be noted that we've heard what Mamie Smith's voice can do in crazy blues and it's certainly not tested with these songs. For both of these songs, there's a solid three artistic statement. In either of them, you could swap the lyrics from a Marian Harris song and not really notice the difference. I do, however, feel for all the musicians in the 20s who seem to have been left by the loves of their lives. It seems to be a rough time to be a romantic for any of these stars. For The Road is Rocky, the song stands out at least as an interesting parable. And while the music is standard, if we take the song at its more generous, coded meaning, then we end up with a Cunningham score of 16 out of 25. Threes across the board with a 4 for artistic statement. That Thing Called Love ends up with a 14, as it mirrors The Road Is Rocky with across-the-board threes, but loses two points for having an artistic statement so bland and lacking that it's noticeable and almost seems lazy. It doesn't detract from the song, but it does take away any staying power that the song could have had with better lyrics. Taking all of Mamie Smith's songs for nineteen twenty, she scores an average of 16.2. Moving on to Marion Harris, we can definitely start by acknowledging that she was an expert in understanding the demands of her audience. She even knew that she would have to leave Victor to go to Columbia, simply because they would allow her to record St. Louis Blues at Columbia, where she made a number one hit with it. While later recordings of the song are much more iconic, including the Bessie Smith version that is closer to a standard, there's no doubt that Marion Smith made the right move to go to Columbia. Having said that, this version of St. Louis Blues is a train wreck. St. Louis Blues, as quoted earlier, was written by W.C. Handy, who had a financial motivation to help Marion Harris sell more records when he spoke so highly of her. St. Louis Blues, as performed by Marion Harris, receives a low score of 13. The lack of authenticity in Marion Harris's version actively takes you out of the song as soon as you notice her affected speech and references to store-bought hair. They simply make no sense coming from Harris, and her attempt to portray them is not convincing this song would have been much improved by customizing the lyrics to suit Harris. While St. Louis Blues receives an authenticity score of 1, it does receive an innovation score of 4. While Harris didn't do a great job executing the St. Louis Blues, there's no doubt that her attempt to sing the blues was successful in its experimentation, if only for the wrong reasons. Where she did innovate was in bringing the song to new audiences, and many new audiences would have been exposed to this version of the blues. While it was a watered down and pandering version, it must have at least done some good work in directing people's attention to an emerging art form. For catchiness, Marion Harris's St. Louis Blues receives a 3. The song can be very catchy when executed more expertly, but Harris's version loses most of its luster. Similarly, Mastery receives a 2. While Harris does a passable vaudeville job of performing the song, her failure to understand the piece is evident even on the first listen. For artistic statement, Harris does deserve some credit and receives a three. As an artist, Harris made a statement by recording St. Louis Blues. And while she was definitely at a decided advantage based on her race and the lack of black performers to compete with, in leaving her label for this song, she made a statement about the value of blues as a popular art form, which is a statement on its own and does deserve credit. While Marion Harris was certainly able to pay the blues some respect, she wasn't able to do the same for all people with one of her worst offenders being Oh Judge, He Treats Me Mean. This song receives a score of 7 out of 25, since it's literally performed from the standpoint of a black woman who is complaining to a judge about her abusive black husband. The song is sung with affected accents that are unconvincing and insulting. The concept of the song is again insulting, since of all the ways to portray a black marriage, Harris chose the one that her audience would be most entertained by, one of domestic violence and abuse. The song is completely inauthentic, scoring a 1. It is slightly innovative in portraying the performed piece as a recorded track, but the experiment of Harrison singing this track is a failure, and for innovation, the track receives a 2. The song is not catchy at all. It's stilted and strange to listen to a song instead of the performance, and it scores a 1. In terms of mastery, the song receives a 2, since as offensive as the lyrics are, they are still below average in performance, and the music has no saving graces either. The artistic statement of this song is awful and inauthentic at best, malicious at worst, and receives a 1. Moving on from that landfill, Grieving For You receives 15 out of 25, with threes across the board making it Harris's best song for this year. When Harris was in her element of melodramatic lovesick singing, you could see how an audience would appreciate her, and in this song her lover has gone, but the melodies are more complex and interesting and help the song be a little better than average. In Sweet Papa Mama's getting mad, which receives a score of 13, another of Marion Harris's lovers has gone missing, but this time the song is a bit more interesting as there are some jokes built in about how instead of getting depressed, she's getting homicidal. She threatens the man with a razor and mentions that he'll soon have a date with an undertaker instead of a chance to flirt with a waitress. Otherwise the song is middle of the road. Marion Harris's average score for 1920 is 12. So while she may have been the queen of the blues in sales, it wasn't because she had better music. Whether or not you agree with us, we want to hear about it, because Cunningham's Law states that the best way to learn something on the internet isn't to ask a question, but to post the wrong answer somewhere. So make sure to find the subreddit's dedicated post for this episode at reddit.com slash r slash Cunningham's Law Review, or reach out through an anchor voicemail. If you leave us an anchor voicemail that we end up using on the show, we'll review an album of your choice in a special episode, even if it's your own bands. If you like what we're doing here, leave us a review on your favorite podcasting service and follow the and playlists. And if you don't like it, definitely don't mention that to anybody. We'll be back tomorrow with another episode of 1920s popular music, this time focusing on the Irish tenors like Burr, McCormick, and Steele. Until next time, I've been your host Richie, and you've been listening to Cunningham's Law Review. Our theme music is a difficult subject by The Insider and nobody else works here.